The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast live from Tulsa, Oklahoma, downtown outside the BOK Center, which I've now found out means Bank of Oklahoma. Uh, it's it's a, uh, a bit of a calm before the storm right now. It appears as if the police have moved the campers that were here for the rally, the Trump rally that will take place tomorrow, uh, away from directly in front of the center. They are now in another partitioned area that I'm going to go walk by in a second. But I just want to set the scene here for you. It is a fairly crisp 78 degrees, a little bit of a balmy afternoon here in Oklahoma. It definitely looks like things were cleared out down by the box center fairly quickly because there is uh, uh, still some sundries. There is a very stale two dozen donuts with a box that's left open, still right in front of there. Now, again, we do not have credentials to be inside the event tomorrow, but I don't think it's going to be a problem in terms of getting around Trump fans who are watching it. What I am looking at right now is a basically a summer amphitheater. The exact same equipment that would be used if you were throwing a festival uh, that I guess will be entertainment and then retransmission of the rally when it goes off at 7 p.m. tomorrow. Of course, this is a complicated day. A little bit later in the program, we are going to be uh, down in the Greenwood District of Tulsa. And if you're not familiar with the Greenwood District, then maybe you are more familiar by these two names, Black Wall Street and the Tulsa Massacre, the first being the precursor to the latter. It is, well... We'll get to that when we get there. But we're going to talk a little bit about Black Wall Street here on Juneteenth. All right, let's head on down to uh, where the Trump folks are. We'll see if we can get uh, get an interview. Politics! Is this the front of the line? <laughs> How long have you guys been here? Um, I've been here since midnight. Since midnight. What's your name? Sherry Corey. And where are you from? Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Uh, all right, so you, wait, you came here from Fort Walton? Yes, I did. How long of a drive? Drive, fly? drive five days five days from fort walton beach florida so you could be here when did you decide to do that um the day actually it was the 14th the 14th so that was right about when he announced that it was came out (laughs) we are getting some enthusiastic road support here for uh for donald trump uh and uh, have you been to a trump rally before Yes, I've been to one of them before, and I fell in love with it. Like, it was the energy, the the positiveness, the people, just the vibes I got off of it. I, when that song came on, I never felt more proud to be an American my whole entire life until he walked out and that song came on. Literally, I so you, my eyes. Okay, so, so at the Trump rally, there is a playlist 
that he likes to use for the Trump rally. Proud to be an American is one of them. Macho Man is also one of them. And it always struck me a little odd. How do you think about Macho Man as part of the uh, the, the, the Trump playlist? It suits him. It is all him. It really is. Like, he's the only one that can hold his head up high and put his shoulders back and walk the walk of the Macho Man. Obviously, we're in a big period of unrest, a lot of uh, uh, anger out in the streets. Uh, you are out here. I presume you're going to be out here until 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon when you get let in. Uh, do you expect to see any protesters? Um, I'm kind of worried about it, being solo at 51, but not really. Um, I'm a fourth degree black belt, so, I mean, bring it on. It, it's all good. I, don't, I really don't expect anything. I, I think it's all talk. It's literally all talk. I kind of feel like this is the official beginning of, of the general election. We had the primaries for the Democrats and then obviously all these national uh, issues and, and the pandemic and, and the protests and everything. This kind of, to me, seems like the first time that this will be about the campaign. How do you assess Trump going into this general election against Joe Biden? Uh, he's got it in a hand. I mean, 99.9% .9 he has it. He's got it 100%. <laughs> so you are very confident. So, all right, but if it's 99, what's that 1%? What, 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 is, what is the 1% that could go wrong, if there's any any doubt at all? The corruption, the fake media, the fake polls, probably the fake elections and all the interference with the elections, the mail-in ballots, you know, and getting a lot of illegals who are not American actually casting their votes, and just the dirtiness of it, the way Hillary Clinton played it. So you think that, that that's, it would really, it would have to be fraud just based on based on the enthusiasm that's here for Trump. From from your perspective, it just seems like there's it's, it's a no-brainer. A no-brainer. Totally made up fraud. If he loses, it was, it was a gimmick. <laughs> All right, so one last question, because one of the big things that's happening is uh, people worried about the coronavirus, worried about you know, spreading it. This is a controversial event, because it's inside, not outside. Uh, and, and everybody's kind of, uh, or not everybody, people are worried about it. Are you in any way worried about it? Um, yes, actually. I've got like four masks, about five different filters. <laughs> I've got my iodine spray. I just got my, my face shield, my clear face shield. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. So you have the full riot shield that is there. Wow, that even that's better than the riot shield because it, it curves under it. Yeah. So, all right, here, just, just so we can get the sound here. Hello. This is from behind the mask. <laughs> So you are definitely going to be masked inside. Totally. Um, it, when I talk to people, normally I'll throw something on. But um, as long as there's distance, I, I'm not worried about it. Do you think that most people will have a mask or not have a mask inside? Um, I believe they will. Those with health issues, um, we definitely have no choice but to make sure we're protected. You know, I can't expect everybody to protect everybody. But, I mean, I really think that they will. A lot of people absolutely will. So for those out there that say like, oh, the, the, the Trump people, they're just going to be there without masks. You, you think that that's a mischaracterization, that, that most people will be smart and put on a mask when they're inside with, you know, 20,000 other people? Um, yes, I do. And they really can't say nothing about people not wearing a mask. I mean, look at the protesting that's been going on for how long now? No masks. Not, nobody says nothing. I mean, to each his own, you know, either protect yourself or have mercy on other people that might be a little bit not in good health, you know? Wise words. Thank you so much. Politics. How you doing, sir? Would you mind if I uh, spoke with you for my podcast? Okay. What's your name, sir? Blake. 
Blake, uh, uh, are you local here? Or did you come from out of town? I'm from San Diego, California. San Diego, California, and you came here just for the for the rally? Just for the rally. Got into town Wednesday night. Uh, number one, how long have you had the the brick wall suit? A little over a year now. I think May of last year is when I first got it. Now, is that like an impulse buy, or are you like like, oh no, I gotta have a brick wall suit, and now I'm gonna go look for the best available options in brick wall suits? Um, pretty much an impulse buy. I had been responding to last year. A lot of people were being deplatformed. Conservative people being deplatformed off the media, off the web. Uh -huh. So you had YouTube being demonetized, Facebook groups being deleted, Twitter accounts being suspended, and I decided that if we can't be conservative on the web, I was going to try to be more conservative in public. So I started wearing my hat out in public. Okay. But then I had a vacation that I had planned already with my dad where I was going to fly into Washington, D.C., into Dulles and meet him, and we were going to go up into Pennsylvania. And I said, I'm going to fly into Dulles. A hat is not going to be enough. i got to up my game. i got to get under the skin <laughs> of the leftists I'm going to encounter in D.C. So I started thinking about what else I could wear that would be, you know, really a little bit more controversial. And yeah. I came up with the idea of a brick wall suit. I looked it up on the web. I found it for sale, and I bought it right off the rack. So this is a this was was an IRL troll situation. You wanted to get under the skin of anybody that would have that get under their skin. Hundred percent. I I don't know if you call it trolling as much as I call it. I call it memeing in real life. Okay, sure. Don't let your memes be dreams. Exactly. Actualize them. Exactly. There we go. Uh, uh, have you been to a Trump rally before? Yes, I have. This will be my ninth one. Ninth Trump rally. How have they changed from the first one that you went to? The first one I went to was in Vegas, and yeah, they've changed. I mean, this one is just totally. I mean, it's a it's a it's a pressure cooker of media coverage because it's the first rally in so long, and we have all of the other vectors that are making it such an interesting one, such as the COVID factor, uh -huh. such as the BLM factor, such as the police reform factor. So there, there's a lot of subtext in this rally that I'm sure will be addressed. And that's why I, that's why I believe there's so much coverage of this one. Well, I mean, it's the reason why I flew my ass out here. So, you know, I, I can certainly understand the, the, the news value in it. Uh, uh, speaking of the COVID stuff, one of the things that is obviously a, a vector in this is the fact that this is a large event that's happening indoors. What do you think the ratio of masks to, to not masks is going to be in there? I think there'd be very few people wearing masks, personally. I think that, um, I'm not so sure that that's, I think it'd be very few people. I'm going to have a mask yeah. and I'm going to assess the situation I'm in. If I get inside and I'm in a group of people surrounded, I'm going to be more likely to wear one. I'm hoping to get right up in the rail in the front row, and then I'm less likely to wear one. Because to me, it's about a spectrum of risk that every individual chooses to accept for themselves. Uh, if, you're in a, if you're in a category where you're high risk because of your age or medical condition, this probably is not the right place for you. And people like that in general should be taking steps to protect their health. And maybe going out to a rally is not one of the things that you would do. In my case, I, I'm not in one of those risk groups, so I, you know, I, I don't feel like I have that. Well, the risk is there. It's not as it's not as bad for me. Not as pressing. Yeah, I mean, if you had a motorcycle and a car, and you had to get from point A to point B, and it was raining and it was at night, 
Maybe you wouldn't take the motorcycle. Yes. Maybe you'd drive the car. This metaphor is getting realer by the second as it starts to rain on us. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, there's risk associated with everything. And I think the idea, the expectation that the government should be able to dictate that people must remain in their homes until there is a cure, a vaccine, or a, a, a really effective means of treatment is just a false, a false narrative. It, that should not happen because if we do that, the economy is, is not going to be able to recover by the time we get out of it. Uh, life entails a certain amount of risk. We can't live in a bubble forever. Uh, we now have a better picture of what the risks associated with COVID are. And I think that people owe it to themselves to evaluate that risk personally and make their own decisions on it rather than have those choices dictated by their state or local government or even their city. And so Trump having this for people that want to take that risk and do feel that they are, are in a class to do it, that is just a choice to be offered and, and that's what it is. Correct, and, and that's why we're here in this state because this state is one of the ones that's furthest along in reopening. So, I mean, if it wouldn't make sense to have a rally like this in a state that's still closed like Michigan, that's not the right place. Yeah. So that's why the rally is in Oklahoma. All right. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to get out of the rain, but I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Politics. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here getting rained on in Tulsa because you guys put me here. Thank you to everybody who has gone to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You guys are uh, uh, the, the, the lifeblood. The $3 Club. I mean, these guys get two bonus episodes a week. One on Thursday. One on Monday. $10 tier, getting shouted out at the end of every episode. Uh, uh, honestly, th this is what you guys paid for. This is what you guys wanted. You guys wanted somebody on the front lines, not beholden to anybody, not being edited by anybody. And this is what you get. Take politicsseriously.com. All right, I am now here at the corner of Greenwood and Archer in the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you're unfamiliar with why this area is significant, then I would encourage you to do a little bit of reading about Black Wall Street because I do believe that the story of Black Wall Street is something that is significant. And on Juneteenth, which I think is... is Thankfully, getting uh, a you know more shine than it has in the past. This seems to be what I'm looking at now is a cultural moment. Greenwood has uh, Black Lives Matter painted on it. When I ran by this street, uh, not but a few hours ago, it did not. There is a fair going on. There will be a concert and event later, but it was on these very blocks that back in the uh, uh, 1910s during the oil boom of Oklahoma a few black entrepreneurs decided that they were going to buy up this land and make a deliberate effort to give refuge and more specifically a kindling to strive for black Oklahomans and folks that moved to Oklahoma with the land rush and then with the promise of money when oil came. Black Wall Street was significant. It was significant for black culture. It was a place where by the 
1920, some of the richest people in Oklahoma lived here, and they were black. Which, of course, makes the tragedy of the Tulsa massacre that much more horrifying. Like so many incidents of that era, it begins with a white woman accusing a black man of rape. It ends with a riot and an ugly one. One that includes kerosene bombs being thrown from planes and raising an entire neighborhood. Of course, it didn't stop there. The city then designated this uh, part of town to be more of an industrial zoned place. And it wasn't until decades later that the Greenwood District uh, became what it is now, what I'm literally looking at, a quaint little neighborhood. There's a, uh, a minor league baseball stadium next to it, a few hipster hotels. You know, I'm pretty sure I saw a, a, a tap room. Basically, everything that you would see in a quaint up-and-coming area, you see now here. If we are in any kind of moment in terms of race relations, then I would hope that places like this can not only become more recognized historical districts, but also tourist attractions. Because while the Tulsa riots are something that obviously deserves attention, the destruction is the punctuation. What I hope doesn't get lost is the idea that Black Wall Street existed. Because I do think that Black Wall Street is the American dream. The American dream isn't about what American values are. It's not the product of America. The American dream is a simple promise that you can do anything. Now, that obviously is not always the case. But examples like Black Wall Street, in a time when African Americans had very little rights, they were out and out discriminated against through Jim Crow laws. They throw... They they thrived here. The destruction is obviously part of it. But I don't want to take away from the success. The success is to be emulated. The destruction is to be avoided. And so, from Black Wall Street, I would like to wish you and yours a happy Juneteenth. Our guest today is Seth Maskett. He is a professor of political science and director of the Center of American Politics at the University of Denver. He writes regularly for Mischiefs of Faction and 538 and is currently writing a book called Learning from Loss, the Democrats, 2016 to 2020, due out in September with Cambridge University Press. But what we want to talk to Seth about today is something that is oft maligned and yet ubiquitous within politics, the idea of the photo op. But first, let's welcome Seth to the show. How you doing, Seth? Good. Thank you for having me on. All right. So I'm very interesting, er, interested in this because we, we first booked you on after the uh, event outside of the White House where protesters were cleared. Trump walks over to the church, takes a picture with the Bible in his hand, and and that is 
roundly criticized by Trump's critics. Uh, uh, but there is a necessary element for having a visual display of what your political narrative is, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we we largely accept that there's a huge symbolic role for the presidency. Um, you know, presidents have, I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of political science uh, literature written on this over many years about how in the U.S. the president sort of embodies both um, the, the role of, of head of government, like a prime minister or someone else, but also head of state. Uh, like a king or queen, basically. So they they do all those symbolic roles that we associate with American democracy, which is everything from like, you know, the Easter egg role or pardoning Thanksgiving turkeys or um, giving inspiring speeches or speaking at funerals or things like that. And and so we, you know, we we certainly accept that there's like a, there is a symbolic, there is a a photographic side of the job. and, And, you know, we don't necessarily begrudge presidents for doing that on, on the whole. So where where does it go wrong then? Like, what is the line that that has it go from? Oh well, uh, this is nice. I, I appreciate that the physical embodiment of America did a very nice thing. To why are you just standing in front of something that uh, politically aligns with your fortunes? Yeah, I mean, as I see it, you know, some of the things I was writing in this piece is that, you know, often presidents use, uh, they, you know, they use photo ops. And it, this is not just limited to presidents, governors, senators, other, others do this as well, but it's often associated with the presidency. And, and sometimes basically they're using these, these very visual um, appearances to sort of, to connect with people who can't be there, to connect with those who are um, out of power or somehow being wronged. And to say that, you know, I'm sort of, I'm your voice. Um, I am, I am empowering you through, through what I'm doing. So, you know, I, I gave examples, like the, the, the sort of example I love was, uh, like, you know, JFK's speech in front of the Berlin wall in 1963, sure. you know, his famous, uh, Berliner speech. Um, he is, you know, he could have simply said, uh, you know, just stayed at home and released a statement saying, you know, we stand with the people of Berlin. Um, but it was a much more powerful thing to actually go there, to appear in front of the wall, um, to identify himself as a Berliner in their own language. Um, that, that sort of symbolized that he was there speaking for this downtrodden group. It, it meant something to the people there. It meant something probably to Soviet leaders as well, who took this as a sign, you know, how much, how much uh, the, the U.S. placed a value on this. So, you know, if you do it right, it, it, can, it can have some value. Um, where things can go wrong is if, you know, it can be a kind of a ham handed symbol. Um, you know, we think of like, uh, you know, George W. Bush with his, um, mission, uh, mission accomplished, accomplished banner, banner on the, uh, on, <laughs> you know, yeah. very, that, that, very that might've been a hat yeah. on a hat when you think about it. Like he could have probably yeah. just landed on the aircraft carrier without saying mission accomplished or had a mission accomplished banner somewhere that wasn't an aircraft carrier. Right. 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 You know, there are things you can do, like appearing with the troops during a war. That's a positive thing, right? That, you know, that signals some of the people at home and, you know, gives the troops a shot in the arm. But uh, you can sort of overdo it, particularly when you're basically saying you've won a war based you know, just a few weeks into something that's going to last a decade, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, 
what I was critiquing Trump for particularly was just he this did not seem a very well thought through photo op. And he's actually done some, I think, halfway decent photo ops before. Um, but in this case, uh, it wasn't like he was connecting with any sort of uh, out of power group. I, I think he was just sort of trying to say he wasn't weak. He wasn't going to be cowered and forced into his bunker um, that, you know, he would have some power and that somehow he would somehow tie this with religious freedom. Um, and so he would stand in front of a church and hold a Bible up in the air as though that were some religious tradition that I, I'm not particularly familiar with. And then yeah. he didn't read from it or, or pray or do anything to fix the church or anything like that. He just held the book up and went home. And, you know, that in itself, I think, would have been awkward enough. Um, but, you know, then you combine the fact that, um, you know, protesters were, were violently cleared from the area first uh, using tear gas, uh, using aggressive police tactics. Um, you know, all that just, I, I think, left a, a, a very bad taste in lots of people's mouths. Um, you know, a number of even a number of, of religious leaders who have usually been fairly supportive of him were, were very critical of him after that. Um, so it didn't it didn't really tie in with any faith tradition. The symbolism wasn't tied to any particular faith. Um, and it seemed a, a very costly maneuver to put up that actually that actually harmed people. Um, in the process. So it wasn't, it wasn't really clear what he was connecting with, what point he was trying to make other than he's fine. <laughs> yes. That he's, that he's a personally strong individual. I, yeah, um, I guess, I mean, and, I guess it was a yeah. law and order thing, like, uh, which, which makes the church element that much more puzzling, but I, I can understand the like, well, I can, the president can walk the streets of DC. So the average citizen can, I, I can get that, but I think you're right that that part of the common denominator of the successful versions of this are effort from the head of state. So no matter what, even if you understand that this is trying to send a very clear message, the fact that the president took the effort to come do something and the benefit that that inherently can bring is enough to sort of get people over the hump. So if he had gone to the church to speak with the church leadership and discuss you know, any possible damage done to the church or something like that, and then walked back, it probably would have been a different scenario than him just posing outside. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And I'll, you know, I think this, it also, I, he was perhaps trying to tie it in somewhat to ideas of religious freedom. I mean, the term religious freedom has, I think, been tortured a little bit over recent years where yeah. it's, it's now tied to things like, you know, my religion gives me the freedom to uh, to refuse to bake a cake for a gay wedding or something like that. Um, you know, the, the, the you know, it, it's been it, it's a fairly loose uh, definition of what what, relig what what religious freedom means today. But I think he was trying to stretch it to say all these protests out here, all this rioting is threatening the freedom of, of Christians to practice their faith. Now, I haven't heard anyone make that argument. Um, no, but I think he was, he was trying to make that link and I just, I, I think it fairly fell flat. Yeah, no, I, I think that there's, there are, there are moments where, and, and let's, let's go give him credit for something that I think happened even, I guess it'd be two weeks prior, but he did an hour long question and answer. I guess it was a town hall technically, but in the social distance area, it's basically an interview. 
uh, with Fox News in front of the Lincoln Memorial, which I thought was kind of inspired staging like that. That, you know, shows a regal element. Lincoln, obviously somebody that traversed one of America's most trying time. This is a trying time. You know, I think I thought that was a little bit more poetic and had a point than than this situation. Like th- this situation seemed kind of muddled and and when everybody's focusing on how you got the photo up instead of what you did while you were there, I think you're you're probably on the wrong side of uh, effectiveness. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, you could say maybe just, you know, appearing with Lincoln was maybe even overselling it a bit, but you 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 could see that and understand what he's trying to do. And yeah. then he's, you know, he's trying to tap into uh, you know, some of the heroes of, of his line of work, of, um, you know, a, a president during a very divisive era in American political history. You can you can understand the symbolism there. All right. Well, I, I, I tell you what, I think that there's there's definitely a lot that we can chew on here. But I, I think that this wound up being a fortuitously scheduled interview because we've talked on this show before uh, very briefly about a Senate primary race out in Colorado. And when I was getting the sound for it and I was looking through all these articles about this particular race of Hickenlooper versus uh, Romanoff, right? Is that correct? Romanoff is his opponent in the primary. Uh, That's correct. Andrew Romanoff, Andrew Romanoff. Uh, Your name Mm -hmm. was part of the coverage (laughs) for the, the, the debate. So I I want to ask you a few questions uh, that, you know, it's hard unless you're really, really getting granular to find good coverage of, of you know, primary races often. And, and this is sort of one of them. But a lot of the national coverage that's gone on is that Hickenlooper, who was former governor, failed presidential candidate, but seemed to, by all available polls, have a very favorable race to overturn a Republican Senate seat in Colorado, seems to not be able to get out of his own way in this particular primary, starting off with an ethics, uh, a series of ethics violations that he had to be subpoenaed to go answer for while he was governor. And then a video of him comparing the life of a politician to that of a slave on a slave ship. So I guess my question is to you, is this seriously affecting his race? Is there a chance he'll get upset in the primary? Uh, it's one of the things where, first of all, there's, there's very little public polling on this race. So it's hard to know, you know, how the candidates are actually doing. Um, my impression has been that, um, you know, Hickenlooper, you know, the former governor has been overwhelmingly favored. Um, he has had really a pretty charmed political career in Colorado. He's just got, um, uh, you know, he's been in the public eye here for nearly 20 years. Uh, he, he did two terms as Denver's mayor um, and in which he was overwhelmingly popular. Like one of the my favorite stats on this is that there was some polling done late in his in his time as mayor where people in surrounding cities, not in Denver, thought he was their mayor and were giving him 90 percent approval rating. So, like, really? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he just sort of dominated the the media airwaves, and he's always been, um, you know, he's always been pretty. He's a he's a moderate Democrat, uh, very much from the business community. Um, uh, you know, moderates within the business community have always been very comfortable with him. He, he's they never worry about him doing anything what they see as too radical. 
And that's, that's always really kind of helped him. So he translates that into um, two successful terms as, as governor in which he maintains very high approval ratings. Um, it's during a period of strong economic growth within the state, good jobs environment. So, um, you know, he's very well regarded throughout the state. However, he was nominated by Democrats, you know, back for governor back in 2010. It was it was a more conservative state at that time. The state has been shifting somewhat leftward. And I think Democrats nominated him figuring he was about as liberal as they could get away with and still win. And I think the party is and the state are, are considerably more left than that today. Um, so, I, you know, in this environment, maybe he wouldn't have gotten nominated in the first place for governor. Um, Jared Polis is, I think, considerably more to Hickenlooper's left. At any rate, um, I think he's still in pretty good shape just simply for the money and the reputation he has. But Andrew Romanoff's a serious challenger. Um, he's challenging him from the left, definitely more on the progressive side of the party. And it's probably a pretty good time for Colorado progressives. I don't know if he has the numbers to do this, but um, Romanoff is not all, Romanoff is, is well regarded, but he was the state house speaker more than a decade ago. Yeah. So he just doesn't have the same kind of name recognition that, uh, that Hickenlooper does. He's well, you know, Romanoff is certainly well regarded among like active Democrats within the state, but, um, and he's also a very good campaigner. I mean, if you, if you watch him at the, at the debates, he's, he's simply, he's just got a real good public speaking style, a real mastery of detail. Um, whereas Hickenlooper is prone to a lot of gaps, frankly. Um, he, you know, he says some awkward things. He says things in really weird and unfortunate ways. He's said a number of things that have, um, uh, made it seem like he wasn't really fully committed to the black lives matter movement, although he's, he's made real pains to correct those in recent weeks. Um, so, you know, just judging on what I've seen, I, I, I would think Hickenlooper just has a lot of built in advantages that make it hard for him to lose, even if he has some goofy statements on the stump, but uh, Romanoff is giving him a serious run for his money. Yeah, I mean that my general total like out of town or layman perspective is like, yeah, I'd probably always bet on the person that was multiple termed governor in terms of name recognition mm -hmm. over the person that wasn't uh, uh, in, in any kind of lower turnout Senate primary race. But let me ask you this. How big of a deal were the ethics violations and how real were they? <laughs> Um, the ethics violations, I understand them. They, they basically involve, um, some trips that Hickenlooper was invited to by lobbyists basically when he was governor and they were, um, considered inappropriate. Uh, they were things that the governor should have been paying for himself and not, um, have other people paying him for. Um, and so, you know, this, this, ethics committee made its determination and ended up finding him in, in the amount of around $3,000. So, you know, $3,000 in the course of state politics, and that, that's not really a ton of money. Um, when you compare it to, you know, what most ethics violations end up actually costing people. Um, but it was, you know, it was something that, you know, he was found guilty of it. It was, um, 
you know, in terms of the things that, you know, voters actually punish politicians for in terms of scandals. Yeah. This is probably relatively minor. Um, we're not looking at like major abuse of power. We're not looking at like at violence. Um, you know, the, these, this, this seems to be, you know, probably like a real scandal, but not a, not a real major one. Yeah. Um, to be, to be honest, but, it didn't uh, really pop yeah. up to me on the national radar until the subpoena stuff, like uh, until the the uh, and and if you could maybe uh, you could probably explain it to the audience better than I could, uh, that he was supposed to come in and explain this or or you know have a final judgment rendered against him and he protested it. Is that is that fair to say that he thought it was like a kangaroo court and didn't show up? Yeah, um, and. This is one of those where it's hard to know how much of the, the arguments about this are sincere versus political motivation, and you, you probably <laughs> never figured out exactly. But um, he, um, yeah, he he was basically refusing uh, to honor the subpoena. He was refusing to come in, and part of it was he claimed there was a misunderstanding about when he was exactly supposed to appear. He thought he could do so um, online over Zoom. Um, and then he expressed concern that, you know, due to health risks uh, because of the, the pandemic, he was not supposed to come in, uh, given his, that he's over 60. Um, so, you know, there, there were a number of competing things, or it might have just been that he just um, simply didn't, wasn't taking it seriously and yeah. thought he could just blow it off um, and that he would do more damage by showing up at this hearing. Um, but they ultimately, you know, they held the hearing in his absence and, you know, they found him guilty. Um, one of the things, I mean, these are, uh, I'm not saying it it isn't a real scandal, but it was, it did initiate from a complaint by, um, by a group of Republicans. And I, I don't know how much you wanted me to get into the weeds on this, but I've been sort of wondering how much of this is in some ways payback for a thing that happened 10 years ago. Oh, get in the weeds. Let's go. Let's go. I love it. (laughs) Okay. 10 years ago, we had this amazing governor's race, which is the race that put him in the governor's mansion in the first place. And on the Republican side, everyone expected this congressman, former congressman Scott McInnes, to get the nomination. However, right before the Republican primary, uh, there was a, a scandal surfaced about Scott McInnes, that he had been plagiarizing these reports that he'd been writing in this newsletter. And hmm. plagiarism seemed like a fairly weird and minor scandal um, to affect, uh, you know, a governor's primary. But suddenly, it, it turns out a, some, a group of Democrats were pushing this story. And it, it, it was true, but they were the ones who sort of raised it and kept, you know, forcing it and running ads about it. And as a result of that, this guy... Um, this, this Tea Party candidate, Dan Mays, ends up winning the Republican primary in this fluke. And Mays, no one took him seriously. It split the Republican Party. A bunch of Republicans ended up endorsing Tom Tancredo, who was running as a third party candidate at the time. It absolutely like wrecked the Republican Party that year. And, and, and Hickenlooper wins the governor's seat in a walk. So, you know, half me wondering if this is just payback for all that, where now the Republicans are trying to interfere with the scandal in the Democratic primary and trying to, you know, throw the throw this contest to what they see as the less electable candidate, um, uh, which, which, which would be Andrew Romanoff. 
All right. So th- yeah, that would be my next, my next question is, it, would you consider that to be a sound judgment that Romanoff would be easier to beat by the, by the Republican incumbent than Hickenlooper? I mean, simply going on the idea, you know, the, the idea that a more, you know, a more liberal candidate is going to be easier to defeat than a more moderate candidate. And there's, there's reasonable political science literature on that, you know, saying that people generally are more comfortable with a moderate than, than someone more, more to the left or the right. Um, then, yeah, I think that's, that's probably a reasonable assumption. Now that said, if you look at some of the, the general election polling that we've had on this, um, some recent polls have had, you know, if you look at like Hickenlooper, if he gets the democratic nomination going up against, uh, the Republican, Senator Cory Gardner, um, Hickenlooper is beating Gardner by huge margins, by like 15, 18 yeah. points. And that, you know, so several polls are showing these kind of numbers. Um, and if that's the case, you know, that sort of suggests maybe electability isn't as much of a concern that almost any Democrat could beat Cory Gardner right now. Um, I, you know, I, I have a hard time believing that you, you switch out Democratic nominees and you get like a, a 15 or 20 point swing in, in the election that, that, you know, that, that goes against most of what I, what I've seen. Um, but you know, is, is the idea that, uh, you know, you put Romanoff in there, it becomes a little bit of a closer race. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. So, so is Gardner exceptionally weak in this race? Um, Gardner, he's in trouble and, you know, this has less to do with, with him than the fact that he is a Republican um, in a state where it's difficult to be a Republican right now. And at a time where it's difficult to be a Republican, I mean, he's, he's just, he's attached to the national ticket. Um, the state has swung pretty strongly left. And um, he also as Senator, I mean, he got in there in the first place and got nominated for the seat in the first place because the Republican party rightly saw him, I think as you know, one of, very few Republicans who could who could win statewide. Republicans have had a, a rough time here over the last decade or so winning statewide races. Um, and, you know, he's definitely got some political skills there. But uh, he also has made a point of really not distancing himself very much from President Trump. Um, he has, you know, he has governed as a pretty solidly conservative Republican. You know, he hasn't really tried to symbolically moderate in the way that maybe like a Susan Collins has. Um, so, you know, he's, he's perceived as kind of a you know, mainstream Republican. He's, you know, he's, he's uh, I think you could see he's departed from his party a little bit on things like marijuana law, trying to stand up for, for state interests on that. Um, but he's now seen as, you know, fairly pro-Trump Republican in a state where Donald Trump is very unpopular. And uh, that's just, it, it's just, it's a hard electro, electoral calculus for him. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't count him out completely, but it's, um, you know, it, it, it's a difficult year to do what he's trying to do. Well, we will get answers to at least the primary question on June 30th, right? That's when, that's when the, uh, that, the, the primary yep. is. Uh, so we will keep yep, an eye uh, on that. It is, it is a mail-in primary, so people are already voting. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the final election day is uh, the 30th. Well, 
Uh, we will find out if Hickenlooper is able to prevail in spite of himself. All right, I, I will have to ask you one more question. So where does this slave ship clip come from? Like, like that, that definitely just <laughs> seems like oppo research that's been sat on forever. But it was a very weird, I mean, obviously it's extraordinarily poorly timed considering what the national dialogue on race is right now. But it was also odd. There's music in the background. Like it was, it was just a, it, it seems like something that's been sitting on a hard drive marked, you know, break in case, in case of Hickenlooper for a while. <laughs> um, as I recall, that was, that's footage from, I think, 2014. So it's fairly old. Um, and he was, I don't remember. I could look it up. I'm not remembering exactly where he was speaking, but it was, uh, he was just giving a, a, a little talk and making a joke about, you know, basically people managing him in his, in his campaign and, yeah. you know, how there's all these taskmasters. And I mean, I guess the way he was describing it, he was talking about like, you know, someone whipping at the front of a ship and it's the people who are rowing. So he's sort of describing like, you know, an ancient ship, uh, not necessarily describing like crossing the Atlantic or anything like that, but you know, it's again, one of those things where if you're explaining the joke, uh, you've already lost. If, yeah. Um, it, I mean, was, in general, yeah. <laughs> slave ship is probably something that you should stay away when you have a hot mic. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I feel weird describing what he described. So it's safe to say mm -hmm. that it's going to come off bad uh, when, when he is, he's there saying it, but that, that definitely, like, sometimes you you just know things that were just filed away uh, for a moment. And I guess whoever doesn't want Hickenlooper to win believes that now's the time to, you know, uh, pour on the gasoline. Exactly. Uh, all right. Well, uh, uh, our guest today has been Seth Maskett, professor of political science and director of the Center of American Politics at the University of Denver, writing regularly for Mischiefs of Faction 538 and uh, currently writing a book called Learning from Loss, the Democrats 2016 to 2020 due out in September with Cambridge University Press. Seth, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It was great talking to you. Politics. One of the things that happened this morning was Donald Trump tweeting out that anybody who dared protest his rally would not get the same treatment in Tulsa that they have in New York and Seattle. Considering some of the treatment we've seen in some of the other places around the country, I don't know what that's exactly supposed to mean. But uh, in doing a little preliminary research, it doesn't look like there's any scheduled protest tonight. If there is going to be an, a counter-protest, it will be tomorrow while the rally is going on, or at least after doors have opened for the rally. So that'll be something that we will cover for you Monday. But it looks like tonight we we are going to have a peaceful night of people celebrating Juneteenth here in Greenwood and camping out outside of the Box Center for the Trump rally. And that will wrap it up for us today. A reminder that you can always email me theyoungamerican at gmail.com. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier, Adam, Andres, Andrew, Archie, Brad, Brian, Chad, Craig, Kurt, Daly, Darren, DL, D-Laser, Dustin, Emily, Frozen, Glenn, Herschel, I poop my pants, Jim, J. Milius, Lindsay, Logan, MacBook, 
Pro, Mike, Miranda, Neil, Nick, Nomadic, Taryn, Olin and Angela, Paul, Peter, Richard, Robert, Stephen, The Gen, Thor, and Zach. We will have your appropriate nicknames next episode. But for now, thank you all for being amazing. And again, bringing this content uh, live from Tulsa. And uh, again, schedule note, we are going to put out a, 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 a free episode on Monday. Normally that's a PX30 Extra episode. But the free episode will go out Monday because, uh, you know, we want everybody to be able to hear anything that we get over the weekend from the rally. Uh, so keep your eye out for that. Until next time, though, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying uh, some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics and still more, man. They are talking about politics. But this is the only show live and direct from Tulsa, Oklahoma. That talks about hope. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>